Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 146 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Roger Davis, Longwood Gardens Outdoor Landscape Manager, about their spring bulb color displays. The plant profile is on Spanish bluebells, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with a last word on core aeration with Jeff L. Rugg, author of Greener View Gardening. This episode, we're joined by Roger Davis. He is Longwood Gardens Outdoor Landscape Manager, and we're going to be talking all about that beautiful spring display of tulips and how it happens and all the other beautiful plantings at Longwood Gardens in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. But before we dive into that, Roger, I wanted to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks, Kathy. It's good to be with you today. Great to have you on. And one of our traditions here at the Garden DC podcast is to ask whether you were born with a green thumb and chlorophyll in your veins. (laughs) I definitely like to think so. I came from a long line of farmers and gardeners. Um, My grandparents loved to have a giant vegetable garden every year. Um, I originally grew up in the South. And so we have to have our vegetables. Um, my father also started a family business, um, a greenhouse business growing vegetables, but then also annuals. And so my crib was in the head house and I always grew up around gardening. Um, and so it's in my blood. A crib in the head house. <laughs> that, that is a perfect uh, name for a biography or autobiography. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> So are you still growing vegetables in your home garden? What's your home garden like? I love gardening at home. I um, like tinkering around with a lot of different plant materials that I don't necessarily grow here at Longwood. So I focus on perennials, shrubs. I have um, a small topiary garden. I love topiary. I've um, taken care of the topiary garden here at Longwood for a number of years, but now transitioned to another position. Um, And so... I still like to play around at home. At home, I get to make a lot of decisions. Um, whereas at Longwood, we kind of have to go through the conduits to change things. We can't just make a decision on the fly. Hmm. So you're a little bit limited, but that helps your creativity. Definitely. And I, I definitely love gardening at home um, and also getting my kids involved. I don't know if they're going to be gardeners, but I think it's important to Um, nurture that next generation of people that love nature and love gardening. Super important. And before we dive too much further, how did you make that transition from growing up in a horticultural family to being a professional horticulturist? I went to school at Clemson University um, and studied ornamental horticulture. And because I had grown up kind of in the greenhouse business, I thought that I would kind of continue in that. However, I um, did a number of internships. I went to 
Chicago Botanic Garden and did an internship over the summer and really fell in love with that aspect of being able to get in the garden, but then also be able to educate the public on gardening and creating beautiful displays that get them excited to try gardening at home. So that's kind of where my trajectory changed a little bit more towards the public gardening um, area of horticulture. Hmm. And I do know so many people whose first real exposure to gardens and public gardens was um, being brought to Longwood Gardens. It's definitely, I mean, at Longwood, we try and have a number of different activities in the garden so that maybe if gardening isn't your forte, maybe you come to a concert or you come to a play. um, But while you're here, hopefully you catch that gardening bug. Um, So it's good to have, you know, a diverse array of offerings in gardens so that because sometimes you don't really know until you've seen and you've experienced Mm-hmm. And let's talk a little bit about the history of Longwood and some of the offerings of Longwood. You're, you referred to, you don't have to be a garden lover to love Longwood Gardens. You have the, the fountain show, the concerts, um, even something for people who are obsessed with mechanics. Exactly, right. We definitely want to, you know, each family member may have different likes, you know. So we have the beer garden for the dads, you know, or we have the fountain show that delight the kids. Um, we will, you know, we also have three tree houses that the kids love to play in and explore. We have a children's garden. Um, so it's definitely important to have a number of offerings, but really horticulture is the core of what our founder, Pierre DuPont, um, the reason he purchased this property it was to save our historic trees um, before he purchased the land Um, It had a long line of uh, Quaker family that um, planted these native trees in this area. um, And they were really large and they were going to be timbered, but Pierre was able to save them. And so that legacy of preservation is a part of who we are at Longwood. Mm, So important. And today, some of the new additions include a large meadow garden. So if you haven't been back to Longwood in a while, definitely uh, visit soon. Yes, definitely. Um, Our meadow garden is very popular. Um, Not traditional horticulture isn't always everyone's forte. So if you love the natural world and the animals and the birds, um, even this morning, I noticed we had a group of birders out checking out what they could see in the garden early before most of our guests came in. Um, And the meadow is a wonderful place for that um, conservation and ecology message to get out to the surrounding communities. Mm -hmm. And then there's the large glass house, the conservatory. And in back of that, my favorite thing, Roger, which is the water garden with the huge Victoria water lilies. They're very popular. Every year we have guests um, that are just mesmerized by the water lilies and aquatic gardening is is so popular. Um, They're just so impressive. We'll even have guests. I just had a guest the other week ask me, he showed me a picture and was like, where is this? And I'm like, oh, it's, (laughs) it's near the conservatory, but they're not out yet. It's still too early in the season. 
I will say the conservatory has done such a good job of providing so much color year round that we've almost created this monster of people come to Longwood expecting to see things in bloom out of season because that conservatory kind of like um, breaks all the rules of what normally flowers at different at certain times of the year. Mm -hmm. And that's a good place to note that the conservatory is being completely uh, redone or expanded. So you might see some construction now, but I think that the completion date is the end of this summer. We have a portion of it that will be um, opening up the end of the summer. And then the next Christmas, I believe the rest of it will be opened. Um, I would say half of the conservatory is still intact and looks fabulous. Um, but some of the smaller areas of the conservatory that were a little tighter and not as guest friendly, um, and we're starting to decline because of just old infrastructure, um, is now being, being brought up to this, this century and it's going to be nice and modern and is going to be a nice addition to our conservatory complex. Yeah. How old was the conservatory originally? Pierre, um, I believe in the 1920s, I believe, was when portion of the conservatory was, was started. Um, and it was a place to um, bring guests from out of town and kind of like um, entertain them and have a party. Um, and so it was a place, this was his country kind of place. He oftentimes would live in the Hotel DuPont downtown Wilmington, um, but then this was his kind of country estate. Mm, ah, that explains part of the architecture of it and how it's set up. Right. Mm, uh, interesting. So since you are the outdoor manager and concentrating on the plants outside the conservatory, let's talk about um, Kennett Square, Pennsylvania a little bit, the climate there, the soil, and describe that maybe for some of our listeners who are outside the Mid-Atlantic and not familiar with Longwood Gardens. Sure, definitely. Um, I would say um, here at Kennett, we have a great climate for growing plants. There's so many gardens that are in this Philadelphia area. Um, we definitely have warm summers, hot and humid summers. Um, we do have fairly adequate rainfall throughout the summer. Um, some are drier than others, but um, we definitely make it. Um, and we do, we do have winters. We're technically here. It's debatable. Um, I like to consider ourselves zone 6B, but some people will say we're getting closer to 7. Um, so we're kind of right on that edge. Um, but we're not that far away from the coast. So we this winter we had virtually no snow, but five years ago, we kept having blizzard after blizzard. So each year is a little bit different, um, but it, it's a great place to garden. Our soil here is um, kind of a loam um, with a little bit of clay mixed in. So it's not the traditional clay that I'm used to being from the South, but um, it, it's great for growing plants. Um, we have we have just um, a, a great climate. Um, th a lot of things do really well for us here. Mm -hmm. And all four seasons really make themselves known. 
Exactly. Yes. I would say um, spring is one of those seasons where we can, like this week, we're getting up to the 80s um, for spring and for tulips that can be a little warm, um, but then it's going to cool back down a little bit next week. So we can jump into summer pretty quickly, but we do really enjoy having that nice long fall season and enjoying that fall color. Mm-hmm. And so Longwood is one of those gardens you can visit every season, you can visit once a month and see something totally different each time. Yeah, definitely. Um, we, we pride ourselves in having, you know, a really nice display year round. Um, our, our Christmas display is very popular um, in our local community. Um, we work really hard to create a real fun environment for families to come and just make memories and enjoy the Christmas season. So that's always very popular during the winter. But, you know, you never want to miss tulip season. Wisteria is not far behind. We want to look great for Mother's Day so people can bring their mothers here to enjoy the flowers. And then we move into summer and have all of the color for all of our summer annuals outside. And like you were saying, the water lilies and the fountain shows and the concerts. Hmm. So let's talk about the flower walk and idea garden and maybe walk a visitor through what it looks like over the seasons. Um, so that is planted in a, a rainbow of colors, correct? And let's talk about that progression. Sure. Flower Garden Walk. Um, we also call it the Brick Walk um, because there's old bricks that kind of line that walkway. And um, this was the first garden that Pierre installed. It's definitely changed over the years from his original garden, but it was kind of the first place that he started gardening um, because it's just south of the house. It's nearby. And so it's evolved over the years. And so right now we have, we start off the season with our bulb display. Um, and those bulbs obviously were planted in the fall. So they overwinter and they come up. Typically April is our month for the tulips, hyacinths, camassia, um, daffodils. We have a mix of things um, for the spring. And then we take our bulbs all the way through till mid-May, once we get through Mother's Day. Then we remove all of our bulbs and we plant our summer crops because mid-May is typically our last frost date for this area. And so you're, we're usually pretty good and comfortable that we're not going to get frost that will damage these tender crops. So we'll get those into the ground. And then usually by July and August, they're really starting to fill in and grow and um, get much larger. We typically plant four inch pots. So it's kind of Im an immature garden in the beginning. Um, of June, but then by the end of July, 1st of August, things are really filling in and getting large and the garden starts to come to life. And then before you know it, you're back around to October and then it's time for bulbs to go back in the ground. Hmm. And let's talk about the color progression. So it goes, starts off with my favorite, which is the purples. Yes. Um, this was started in the 70s. We had um, some landscape architects that came to Longwood and they were trying to 
guide Longwood um, and provide direction. And so we started this color blocking idea on Flower Garden Walk. And so we've just carried that on for the through the years. The first border is the purple border in spring. Since there's really no true blue tulips, um, we, we do purple in the springtime. And then the next border is pink. And then around the circular fountain, we kind of have a mix of colors and it can kind of change from year to year. So we have a little flexibility there. And then we move into the longer, the longest border, and that's red, yellow, and orange. And they're all kind of mixed together. It's all those hot colors. And then we finish off at the very end with the white border. And um, the white border kind of is a, a clean, fresh look before you head into Pierce's Woods that um, is a collection of our native plants of the East Coast. And so it's kind of a nice progression into the natural area. Hmm. So it's kind of a rainbow, but not quite the, the colors of the rainbow. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everybody can find their favorite places to pose in front of to match or contrast their outfit. Exactly. It's definitely right now we're at peak tulip bloom. So it's very popular place for people to get their pictures made. And so all those bulbs you were saying get pulled out in mid-May. What happens to those bulbs? Do you save any to plant next year? Sometimes we will have requests from local community groups and organizations that are looking for donations. And oftentimes we will save our daffodils because those are really hardy in our region and are very tough. For the most part on the East Coast, um, tulips aren't very good at being perennial. You might find a patch at home that comes back for you well year after year, but for the most part, we're pulling them out before they have time to die back naturally. So they're still photosynthesizing and storing those carbohydrates for the next bloom. And we're pulling them out because we can't have the display of brown foliage. So we compost those, they get shredded and they're added to our compost pile that then comes back to feed the soil throughout the gardens. Wow, so it all goes back and used in the garden. And with that bulb display, you're planting it in October, how close are you planting those bulbs? Um, Depending, I guess, whether it's a tulip or a hyacinth or a grape hyacinth. Right, in general, things are planted between four to six inches apart. Um, we often we also have different planting schemes. Um, the The fronts of the beds are typically early varieties that we will, as soon as they finish blooming, we will pull them out and we will replace them with a spring crop like osteospermum, snapdragons, pansies. Um, Nemesia, those things that can take the cooler weather and do well. Um, And then we call them our band-aids. They kind of help fill those holes that the early bulbs did their job. And so now we put those crops in to provide that color to get us through Mother's Day looking as pretty as possible. Um, Typically tulips don't really last all the way till Mother's Day unless we have a really strange spring that... um, is really cool. Usually by the 1st of May, there's not too many tulips left, except for maybe some of the very later latest varieties. 
but then we mix in camassia and alliums that um, are coming on and starting to look really, really good. So um, the closer you get to May 15th, the fewer tulips you have. But we try and make sure when we plant them that we're planting them in a scheme that can expand that season as long as possible. So we'll put a mid and a late together in the same bed and then deadhead the one that finishes first. And then you have the second flush of flowers that will come. So you kind of get double duty in that bed. Hmm. So it's a lot of maintenance when you're doing that deadheading and, and catching the tulips as they're going out. Um, do you leave some kind of in that, um, I guess I call it the nodding head phase or the dropping of the petals. I, I kind of actually like that look. Right. We, we have a little bit of a debate. Some people like it. Um, we definitely have some tulips that have really, like if you pull the petals fall off and you, or you pull the petals off, it has like a beautiful stalk with, you know, the seed head on top and they're kind of attractive. So we'll sometimes leave those. Um, and then other times they're not as attractive or there's too many of them. And we will go ahead and snap those off and leave the foliage. Um, to continue to photosynthesize and to continue to fill that bed so it's not an empty space. Um, the nice thing, we also have a lot of daffodils, and daffodils have that nice, more grassy type foliage, and that can kind of cover ugly tulip foliage if something starts to decline. So we do mix in some daffodils as well. And then when those finish up, you can just deadhead those, and you still have really nice, clean foliage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another vote for daffodils for that aspect. And of course, they're deer resistant and longwood doesn't have deer in it or they don't last long on the grounds. Do they? <laughs> well, actually, we have had a lot of trouble with deer this year. Um, our population um, is definitely very healthy. And so one, we have a few tricks that we use because if you just have one trick with deer, they figure it out. They're very smart. Um, and so we have a small electric fence that we use. The, um, we have students that help us set it up around the garden each evening, and then staff will take it down each morning so that our guests never see it. Um, but that helps protect um, during that kind of February and March month. Um, we will put plastic netting on the top of the beds when we plant the bulbs in October to keep the squirrels from digging up bulbs and moving them around the garden. However, we still found a lot of rogue bulbs in odd areas this year. The squirrels were definitely busy, but we always, we always tell ourselves we plant about 150,000. If they get 10 or 20 or 30, it's not the end of the world. Our display will still be fine. Um, but it definitely is a lot of hard work. And so when you see critters eating or digging up your bulbs, it can be a little disheartening, but mm -hmm. we definitely have to protect them because tulips are a deer's buffet. They absolutely love them. Yes. And I call that squirrel scaping when you find a couple of your bulbs moved to somewhere else <laughs> that you did not plant them. I like that. Yes. We definitely have some of that this year. <laughs> so let's talk about the varieties of tulips themselves. So um, you're planting almost, I think, 200,000 bulbs, um, including the tulips and others. Uh, but how much of that 
are the tulips and what varieties are you finding are the most um, attractive and popular with guests? Yeah, definitely. We, um, we, we plant a lot of bulbs. And so over the years, we've kind of developed different planting schemes um, using some of our favorite varieties and mixing in other, other bulbs with it. Um, Cause you really want to increase variety um, so that there's that long season on flower garden walk. We have right now, we have 80 different varieties of tulips. And I would say percentage wise, about 75% of the display are tulips. We try and focus on the tulips, but we still love these other bulbs and want to make sure they're represented as well. Um, And so, but people come with the expectation that they're going to see tulips. So we definitely don't want to disappoint um, and want to have plenty of them. This year, um, there's been a lot of real standouts. Um, I really love lily flower lily flowering tulips. Um, Purple Dream is one of my favorite ones. It's a a beautiful purple lily flower that has pointed tips and Mm -hmm. opens up really wide um, and is just spectacular. Um, Lily flowered tulips come in a lot of different colors. We have a yellow one called Flashback. Um, There's also some pink forms. Um, So, and they typically are kind of the mid-season to late varieties. So um, they're kind of that end of, like they're just now coming into flower now. Um, we definitely want to make sure that we have hyacinths because it's there's nothing better than walking through the garden and getting the scent of something really fragrant. Um, we start off with magnolias and they smell wonderful. And then having those hyacinths um, dotted throughout the garden also is really nice. So there was a purple variety we used this year um, called Woodstock. That was just spectacular. And I can't believe quite a few of them are still in flower now. Um, So, but it won't be long before it's time to replace those with other crops, but there's just so, so many different um, varieties that you can plant. Um, And Holland does such a good job of um, seeing following the market trends and colors and marketing with fun names. Um, mm-hmm. We have a tulip called Hocus Pocus. <laughs> There's um, a beautiful traditional tulip called Queen of Night that everyone kind of knows and grows. It's a really dark purple tulip. Um, we always have to have that in the garden. Uh, one of my favorites is Daydream. It starts out yellow, but then as it ages, it goes to a really pretty orange. And so that's just a really nice kind of transition. Oftentimes tulips will emerge one color and as they age, they will fade or develop other colors. So that's always fun to watch them kind of change throughout the the spring season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of my favorites is Angelique and depending on it, the season, I think, or the year, sometimes it's more pink, sometimes it's more creamy pink or and sometimes brighter, but I think it also is the aging of the flower as well. Right, definitely. Um, And that's why, you know, we oftentimes get a little bit deceived or we get expectations when we see something that we're buying online. Um, Because when you grow something in Holland or by the time it's been Photoshopped a little bit, it might not be exactly um, 
what it looks like in your garden, but at least it gives you a good representation of what it can be. Um, but I know I've fallen into the trap of seeing something online and then expecting um, and getting different results and like, oh, that wasn't what really what I was going for. Mm-hmm. But but I guess that's part of the internet, right? <laughs> yep. And that's a great point too, that people can come, uh, home gardeners can come and look at the tulips in Longwood's display and take their own digital photos, but also see them in person and look at the color and know that that's the color versus, yeah, sometimes, you know, your monitor is off, your iPhone coloring mm-hmm. might be off, or even the catalog printing, the color can be slightly off, even though they try to get it as close as possible to the true colors. It's it's never always true. As, and then it also depends on the light of day, right? Exactly. So it could be golden hour, you know, towards five o'clock is going to look a lot different than it looks um, in midday. Yeah, and I would even say um, that even in gardening, the more you garden, the more you realize that things don't always behave the same way every time. You can sometimes plant the same crop multiple times and you can sometimes get different results depending on, you know, how you like whether you bought it and you grew it from seed or whether you got it from cuttings or um it's in a different location and it just acts a little bit different. It's taller, it's shorter, it blooms earlier, it blooms later. So that, to be, to be honest, that's one of the fun parts of gardening to me is kind of the experimenting and the seeing and the trying. So true. And um, you were talking about some of the long lasting hyacinths that you have this year. I've gotten a couple questions from listeners about the flopping of their hyacinths. They came up, you know, straight and tall and they have such a beautiful flower head, but it's heavy. Um, do you have to prop up any of yours or are they closely planted enough that they're kind of holding each other up? Right. They are um, planted fairly close. And so ours do along the edge, a lot of times they'll kind of flop to the front edge. Um, but I did one of the like key little tricks that they use in Holland is they have little stakes that they'll kind of put right next to the stalk and kind of run it down through the flower buds as they're opening. So you never even see that little green stake, but it keeps the flower standing perfectly straight. Um, We haven't gotten to that extreme in our garden because they usually just turn into a whole solid bed. But if you're really interested in them flowering straight up and down, that's definitely a trick you could use. Okay, so look out for those little green flower stakes or maybe use some chopsticks or skewers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those are fun. Yeah, especially if you only have a few in one bed and, and you wouldn't want them or in a container. Right, yes. And speaking of containers, um, you've added some containers to the flower walk this year. Yes, we have in an attempt to try and, you know, bring new ideas and fresh ideas um, I had the um, nursery staff grow some baskets for us. Um, oftentimes in spring, the tulips, most tulips are, you know, a foot, a foot and a half in height. Um, and so the beds can be very flat. And so I thought, well, why don't we raise baskets up on posts so that we get some of that color up off the ground? So we have multiple layers. Um, Gardens are fun to build and have layers in that creates interest. And so we were trying to do that with the spring display. 
And so these baskets were an attempt to try and get some color up high, but then it's also consistent color. These are any spring annuals that are going to flower all the way through till mid-May when we get ready to switch over to summer crops. And so it's a good consistent color um, and will help our display carry on. Nice. And it also helps to make a kind of a layered garden to have something up high and something down low. Um, so your experience, you know, especially walking in, looking straight down the brick walk from a distance is a little different. Definitely. We've also experimented a little bit with using shrubs in our border. We don't want to displace too many of our tulips, but um, in the white border, we have a white flowering spirea that um, did really well for us this year. And then it has kind of chartreuse foliage as it emerges. We also planted um, some white paper bark birch in the white border. They're just in containers and they're sunk in the ground so that they can be pulled out after the bulbs are finished. Um, but adding those kind of woody elements into the garden can also be a way of adding that layered effect. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about uh, some of your sourcing of those bulbs. Now, I know that Longwood has a much bigger budget, right, than <laughs> uh, most of us home gardeners would. Um, so are you buying at wholesale or where are you purchasing from? Yes, we, um, we make up our wish list. We, we have a crop list where we list out all of the varieties that we're looking to purchase. And then we send that out to bid to Holland. We have um, three or four wholesale vendors that we like to use um, that are very dependable. And so they're able to ship to us. Um, we typically are buying bulbs in crates of 500, 500 or 600 bulbs. Um, and so most, most residential people are not able to, you know, buy that, don't want that many of the same thing, but it works out well for us. Um, and so we buy those wholesale and they'll come typically the 1st of October, and then we'll get them in the ground um, kind of that third week of October, fourth week of October. Um, and it seems to work out really well for us. Um, but for homeowners, there are a lot of online places where you can buy really good bulbs. And so searching online, I always like to look at Brent and Becky's bulbs. Um, they're here in Virginia, close by, um, and they have a lot of unique things, but there's quite a few vendors around that um, have unique bulbs that you can put in your garden. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're big fans of Brent and Becky bulbs and have had uh, them on the podcast as well. And so when you're buying that those huge quantities, 500 of this or 600 of that, are you going actually to the docks of Philadelphia or Baltimore and picking them up or how are they delivered? We have a shipping company um, that's able to um, tractor trailer them to our site. Um, and then we're able, then once they arrive on site, um, I get the privilege of going through each and every one of those crates and labeling them as to their location and where they go. Um, because not all of our bulbs at Longwood go on Flower Garden Walk. Um, some of them go to the Idea Garden. We plant at the front gate. Um, so there's a number of different locations. And so we, I go through and stack them all and get them organized um, because when you buy them, they're just all mixed together and maybe multiple locations are using a couple of the same varieties. So I split them out and get them organized so that when October comes, 
we can haul them over to the gardens and we can start planting. Hmm. And so how many people are working on that uh, color walk with you? It varies, um, but we try and get as many people as possible. Um, in our outdoor landscape team, we have um, about 15 full-time gardeners. And so we ask as many people as can to come over and help us. I would say at any given time, we typically have about 20 people helping us to plant each day. And it usually takes us about a week and a half to plant um, the 150,000 on Flower Garden Walk. Um, and we also will use corporate volunteer te teams to help us plant. Um, we also have a wonderful Longwood volunteer group um, that are available and they help us. So it really does take a team effort to get all of these in the ground. It's, it's definitely a busy time of the year. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that Longwood used volunteers for the plantings too. Um, that's great to hear. Yes, it, it's definitely um, hard being on the ground for eight hours a day, but um, we've had a number of volunteer teams that have come and they love bringing family and friends back to the gardens in the spring to show them the area that they planted. Um, they take a lot of pride in that. So it's a great kind of community outreach as well, just to have more people feel like they have a part of what Longwood is. Hmm. Yeah, and that ownership is is great uh, mm -hmm. for them to to be able to take part. And how about other tulip displays or bulb gardens or spring displays that you visited and would recommend, um, either in the Mid Atlantic or even worldwide? Well, the most famous bulb display is the Kuchenhof. I've never been able to get there in person, but I've seen many pictures. Um, and so I think that's kind of the quintessential bulb display that everyone knows about. But to be honest, a lot of our public gardens, they all use bulbs for that early color. To be honest, you know, after you've come, in, come out of winter and everything's kind of brown and, um, you know, there's interesting things during the winter, but it's just not as colorful. But when you start seeing crocus come up and you start seeing those first daffodils, everyone gets excited to get in the garden. And so all of our botanic gardens that are close by, they all have them. Um, it's always fun to go to Chanticleer, which is right outside of Philadelphia and to see what they're doing. Um, Winterthur is close to us and they have, you know, that those small naturalized bulbs. Um, so there's just so many places to go and see bulbs in the spring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Winterthur is known for that March bank with those early, almost ephemeral bulbs that pop up and disappear within a matter of weeks. So what is the peak bloom timing for Longwood tulips that you would recommend people to visit? I know some displays, they aim for Easter. And as you said, yours are pretty much over by Mother's Day. Right. Yeah. It can be a little bit challenging since Easter moves around on the calendar, but typically I always tell people you can usually bank for tax day to be pretty good for tulips. So usually that mid-April time frame, um, tulips are looking really good for us here in Kennett Square. Um, it may shift slightly, but that's always a best estimate. Um, this year, um, we started out really warm 
and things were pushing on and everyone's like, wow, everything's going to be early. But then we had some cool nights with some frost. And so things slowed up a little bit. Um, bulbs are really temperature driven and they really do, you know, make hay while the sun is shining. They really do grow really fast when it's warm temperatures. But then as it cools down and you do get frost in the evenings, they definitely do slow up and, and kind of hold off. So um, it all works out, and, but typically May 15th is our peak tulip, tulip time. Uh, April 15th. Yes, April 15th. Correct. Yep. And um, I was just going to ask, for, on the behalf of home gardeners, are you fertilizing or watering the bulbs or adding any amendments to the soils when you're planting them? Because we're treating our bulbs as annuals, um, we don't really have to fertilize. They basically come set, ready with the carbohydrates they need to flower this, this spring. Um, and so we don't. But if you're leaving your bulbs in the ground and you are um, wanting them to be more perennial, um, you definitely could fertilize them with a little bone meal. Um, that typically works pretty well for, for tulips that you're going to try and leave in the ground. Typically, daffodils are pretty resilient, and I've never really had to fertilize daffodils. Every once in a while, they may um, slow up on their blooming because there's too big of a, a community, and you may have to like dig a clump up and spread them out and like um, kind of separate them a little bit, and that will reinvigorate them to flower. But um, they really do flower well for us in this area and don't really require a whole lot of extra attention. And we usually, get a, we usually get enough water, so rainfall isn't an issue, so they seem to bloom just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a big fan of daffodils because they are so much, you know, set-it-and-forget-it plants that you really don't have to do anything for them. They naturalize and expand pretty well. Yeah, definitely. They're a go-to if you have deer in your, in your garden. Um, and the nice thing about daffodils is... There's like little small miniature daffodils that are really cute and early um, and look more naturalistic. And then there's the big giant like, you know, King Alfred, that's just the monster trumpet that you quintessential um, daffodil. Um, and then there's everything in between. There's almost like the like paper white daffodils. So I think there's a daffodil that everyone can fall in love with. Hmm. Yeah, so true. There's so many different daffodil shapes and colors from whites to the almost peachy pinks mm -hmm. and not just the true yellows. So if you're not a big yellow fan, you got a lot of daffodils to choose from there as well as the different shapes and sizes. So let's look ahead to summer in the color border at Longwood and maybe you can give us a little preview of some unusual annuals that you're using this year and that they'll be seeing when they come back in midsummer. So this year on Flower Garden Walk, um, I tried to design through the eyes of what would Mr. DuPont have in his annual garden. Since it was his first kind of annual garden on Flower Garden Walk um, and trying to recreate that. We do have some information of, of what he grew, but and we don't have to necessarily stick to that, but I'm like, he probably wouldn't have had too many bananas. He would have left the bananas in the conservatory. Um, so we're going back to some of those old fashioned um, annuals that are tried and true. Um, everyone loves zinnias. 
So we make sure we have zinnias represented in the garden, but we will use new varieties. We'll use some of the more disease-resistant varieties like the Zahara series um, that are dwarf zinnias. They're shorter and more compact, but they really are workhorses and they just flower like crazy. And they don't have as much trouble with the powdery mildew um, at the end of the season like other zinnias do. Um, my favorite dahlias, we always like to have dahlias in the garden. We do have records that Mr. DuPont planted dahlias. Um, and so I always love to have those for that wow kind of at the end of the season. Because when September rolls around, dahlias, that's their time to, to really shine. We also have quite a few old-fashioned annuals like Nicotiana. Um, people are always curious about Nicotiana and um, are interested to find out that it's a relative of tobacco. Um, we also love to have things in the garden that, um, that are kind of ephemeral and also fragrant. So having four clocks, you know, it's kind of a, a plant that may have fallen out of fashion to some gardeners, but bringing back some of those old tried and true plants for the summer garden is always fun. I mean, Cleome, you can't really go wrong with the spider flower. Like it's a beautiful plant that can kind of weave and self-seed itself into the garden, as well as Kiss Me Over the Garden Gate is a fun plant that I like to put in the pink border. However, I do realize that it will seed in, so we'll just have to make sure to pull some of those seedlings because we don't want them all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of those annuals are prolific reseeders, but that's half the fun, right? Exactly. Right. And it's not that hard if you, we oftentimes after we plant, we'll mulch with shredded leaves. And so that really helps keep down on some of those things that seed in prolifically. Hmm. Well, I can't wait to visit and see the summer display and the bulb display now is so amazing. Um, how can people find out more about Longwood Gardens or contact you if they want to learn more? Definitely. Um, Longwood has a wonderful website with a lot of information that kind of helps to guide your visit. Um, we are closed on Tuesdays, but um, we're open from 10 until 5 right now. And then as it, we get a little bit further, it'll be open till 6. Um, and so the website is a wonderful place to check before you, before you come and also buy your tickets ahead of time. Um, the spring has been so busy with tulips that we have sold out some days. So you definitely want to buy your time tickets before you arrive. Good advice, Roger. And thank you so much for sharing a behind the scenes of the spring color display and a little bit about the rest of the year. And uh, any final thoughts for home gardeners out there who want to add color to their gardens? I would say to visit other gardens, see what works in your area and just go for it. Have fun and enjoy it because this is definitely a wonderful time to be outside, enjoying creation and um, getting out in the garden and get your hands in the dirt. Thank you, Roger. Take care. Spanish Bluebells Plant Profile Spanish Bluebells Hyacinthoides Hispanica are a flowering bulb that blooms in mid-spring. The common name comes from the lavender blue bell-shaped blooms on its foot-tall flower spike. They are sometimes referred to as wood hyacinths. While the flowers are normally blue, you can also find 
white, and pink forms. They are native to Spain and northern Africa. These little bulbs are hardy to USDA zones 3 to 8. Spanish bluebells prefer well-draining soils in sun to part shade locations. They are deer resistant and low maintenance. The bulbs naturalize by both self-sowing and by making more bulb offsets. You can dig and divide a clump to replant them once the foliage starts to die back. If planted near English bluebells, Hyacinthoides nonscripta, they can potentially hybridize with each other and create new flower forms from the seeds. Spanish bluebells, you can grow that. What's new this week in the garden? Well, the lilacs, azaleas, and even golden ragwort are blooming. Over at the community garden plot, we are thinning the radishes and still picking asparagus. And the thornless blackberries and strawberries are prolifically blooming, so hopefully we will have fruit soon on both of them. In the local gardening world, several upcoming local garden events include the Mount Vernon plant sale at George Washington's Mount Vernon in Alexandria, Virginia is April 29th and 30th. The Beltsville Garden Club plant sale is Saturday, May 6th from 9 a.m. to noon, rain or shine at the Roosevelt Center parking lot center way in Greenbelt, Maryland. On Saturday, May 6th, Ledoux is having its annual festival. The Garden Club of Chevy Chase is having their 2023 Garden Tour on Sunday, May 7th from 12 noon to 4 p.m. And another Garden Tour is being hosted by the Georgetown Garden Club. It's their 93rd annual tour on Saturday, May 13th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then the Silver Spring Garden Club is hosting their annual Garden Mart plant sale fundraiser on Saturday, May 13th from 9 a.m. until 1 p.m. at Brookside Gardens. We'll have links to those in our show notes and much more information there. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Get low-maintenance alternatives to lawns with the new book Ground Cover Revolution by Kathy Jets. 
Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. This is the last word on Core Aeration by Jeff Rugg, author of Greenerview Gardening, the owner's manual for anyone who takes care of a landscape, and the creator of over 250 horticulture videos on the Greenerview YouTube channel titled Greenerview. Have you seen the signs around town for getting a core aeration on your lawn? It is spring, and people think that's the time to do lawn work. That's not true in this case. The best time to do a core aeration for cool season grasses is in the fall and for warm season grasses, it's in the summer. They advertise that the core aeration will fix the lawn's thatch problem. The problem is that most lawns don't have a thatch problem. First, thatch is not the tan, light brown, dead grass blades and lawnmower clippings left on a lawn. It's a dark cinnamon brown collection of roots and stems growing on the soil. Thatch is beneficial until it gets to be over a half inch thick. Don't dethatch a lawn or do a core aeration on a lawn that doesn't even have thatch. If a core aeration is to be done properly, it needs to have 20 to 40 cores per square foot removed from the soil. The cores need to go into the soil a minimum of three inches, and if they're to relieve soil compaction, then they must go through the hard compacted soil into the soft soil below. Most rental core aeration machines will not do a proper job of core aeration. This was the last word on core aeration by Jeff Rugg, author of Greenerview Gardening, the owner's manual for anyone who takes care of a landscape, and the creator of over 250 horticulture videos on the Greenerview YouTube channel, titled Greenerview. Go to greenerview.com to find out more. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you.
You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.